Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often, they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California. I'm Krista. I'm Kristen. And we are the Sixth Sense Society. Welcome back to another episode of the Sixth Sense Society. Tonight we are going to be talking about one of our favorite books, Magic in Theory and Practice by the great Aleister Crowley. Um, and so before we get started, however, Michael has a few things to say, announcements, and a couple of things about our episode, our, our adventures last night. Sorry. Mm-hmm. We had some a really good time last night. We were over to David Omens, our friend who has the haunted house up in the Hollywood Hills where the Manson family did in Sharon Tate, all those folks. Um, and it was a fantastic evening. We had a really good time. Lots of really cool people there doing ghost hunting. But this really funny thing happened. He was having a seance in, in the bottom room. Um, and and so there, a friend of ours was there, and she was um, talking about her sister, trying to connect with her sister who had passed over. And, and so the medium you know, did her shtick. And after she left the room, um, they had a little keyboard, a, a piano-like keyboard that was sort of a kid's toy. It looked like a, you know, my little pony kind of thing, very pink and, and childlike, you know. And, and I guess they thought the ghost could manipulate that somehow to make sound. And so after the, the medium left, I went up to my friend and said, wouldn't that be uh, be a great thing? Maybe we could channel Liberace. And she got really spooky and looked at me. She said, my sister actually was engaged to Liberace. And she actually showed me the, uh, showed us all the pi- the pictures that were from back in the day where they were actually, you know, on the cover of TV Guide or something where they were actually engaged to each other. And so what a cool synchronicity. And, and then they'd had these EVP meters and stuff on the table. And no sooner did um, we talk about Liberace and it had been, they'd been doing nothing all night when suddenly all it started to go crazy and light up and everything else. So I think that we channeled the spirit of Liberace at David's place last <laughs> night. So it was pretty funny. So it, was, it really livened the place up. So we had a really good time with that. Um, but we thank David and he's going to do more events in the future. And you can find out that information on our website too. And if you get to go to his ghost hunts, it's always a heck of a good time up in the hills. So we encourage that. Uh, a couple of other announcements just for their show, and then we'll get started. Um, we just passed 1,000 downloads on our podcast, so thank you to all you guys that are Yay. listening on Spotify and iTunes and whatnot. That makes us happy. And we are about six people away from our 200th subscriber. So if any of you are listening that haven't subscribed, you can be number 200. You know, we should have like a giveaway or something for number 200. Um, but Prove it. Yeah, exactly. But we would appreciate it, and that, that would be really great. And we're, we're getting a lot of new subscribers, and we're super happy about that too. And some great comments and we love it. So if you guys have a comment on our show, love to hear it, and it's always a really good thing. Um, Just a quick look at next week. Um, We are going to have our good friend, Reverend Jim McGrath, back on the show again. 
And he's going to talk about evangelicalism and the rise of fundamentalism, in particular with Christianity, and how that kind of, you know, was born and moved away from the real Gospels and so forth. And so we're going to have a hard look at fundamentalism, which is, a, I think, in our day and age, a very important thing to look at. It's been a big factor in our society, for sure. So I think that that's going to be really interesting, and we have a bunch of other great shows come up. So don't want to spend all night on it, so go to our website, sixcentsociety.com. And you can find all the information on upcoming shows and everything else that's going on with us. And we're, we're happy to send you there for info. So with that, I'm going to kick it back to you guys. And we're going to get into Alistair Crowley and magic and theory and practice. Great. Thanks so much, Michael. So let's just get aside a couple of facts about the book itself. First of all, it's part three of Crowley's magnus opus, Magic with the K, which he is the one differentiating the word magic, like stage magic which is M-A-G-I-C, and added a K so you can see the difference. And no, it's not stage magic he's talking about. Um, So the book evidently was created because of questions that his principal students ask over a certain period of time. And um, the principal collaborators, I can't talk tonight for some reason, were actually a lot of them were women. Uh, and they were given credit for their collaboration, which I didn't know. This was something new I discovered. And one was Sora Virakam, um, Leela Waddell, and Sora Rodon. Those were the three. And then he gave also some co-authorship credit. So I don't quite understand the difference, but um, he differentiated. And it was uh, dedicated to Rose Crowley and to Frata Per Ardua and Leah Hersig and Gerald York. I used some of their their fraternity names and some of them just the regular names there because I couldn't pronounce some of them. Um, so it was, you know, so I, that's how it came to be. Uh, it was originally published in 1929, but was interesting about the collection of the four books, which is a bigger volume with, which has three other parts in it, was actually not published um, the first edition until 1994. Um, and by the way, if you want to read this particular book, and I think many of Crowley's books, are free online. I could not believe how many places you can find the PDF, the full book. tells you what edition it is if you don't have the money. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, Michael, but when I worked at the Buddy Tree Bookstore, there was a section for Alistair Crowley in the back where the office was, and it was all you couldn't reach it. You had to get the staff to help you because Crowley's um, fans all thought his work should be free. <laughs> and so now some of them are so they got their wishes so I, I thought that was kind of funny so that um and then one other thing I wanted to say about just the way a magic and theory and practice is arranged it's arranged in basically um there are four parts the first um not no sorry not magic and theory and practice but the magic itself has four parts so it has a part one is mysticism part two is magic elementary theory Part three is what we're talking about tonight, Magic and Theory and Practice, which, by the way, you can definitely read on its own. And part, part four is the Book of the Law. And all of the books that he has written, at least these two, have a lot of good stuff in the appendices. So you definitely want to check out the appendices. And, and by the way, his footnotes sometimes are really funny. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you should check that out. Um, so maybe I'll start just with a little bit about the introduction, and then I will we'll kick it over to Kristen and Michael. And the reason I wanted, first of all, if that's the only thing you read in the book, you will get so much information about his intention, about magical theory, definitions of magic, which some are very famous. You'll have a lot of food for thought. 
And one of the things that I really noticed this time, because I've read this more than once, and it's one of those books that you really can reread and something will strike you differently according to where you're at with your own practices in life. And um, he said he wrote this for everybody. And the quote he said was, um, it's funny because he said, magic is for everyone. I've written this book to help the bankers, the pugilists, the biologists, the poet, the Navy, the grocer, the factory girl, the mathematician, the stenographer, the golfer, et cetera, et cetera, so that to fulfill themselves perfectly each in his her, or her own function. So why um, I think it is really important, Alistair Crowley's work, you really get a sense of what he's trying to accomplish is way bigger than following the path of ceremonial magic. And, it's, and you get it, the more you read uh, differently, different books by him, you really see how he's been misrepresented on so many levels. So I wanted to just start with that idea, like the introduction, and then uh, I have some more, but let's kick it over to you and see what some of your thoughts are about the book. Well, I, the way that Aleister Crowley has this great definition of magic, and he says, magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. And what's interesting when you read a lot about um, about this book is that he constantly talks about science as uh, magic as science and science as magic. And what I think is really awesome about that is you kind of break it down in these sort of um, these steps mm-hmm. <laughs> that are almost very practical. So it just I kept when I was reading it, I kept think, thinking about practical magic, the name of that that movie. And but it's very similar in the sense where there's these very specific steps about um, being uh, it's it's the it's the structure in which you create um, and you use your environment around you to will something. So um, yeah, I think I think it's he's a very interesting dude. Yes, and and you know he's older when he writes this book, and what he says in the introduction too is that now this is really telling about how modern some modern Crowley students view Crowley. It's completely wrong because he said at the time when he was still alive, my former work has been misunderstood and its scope limited by my use of technical terms. It has attracted only too many dilettante and eccentrics, weaklings sinking in magic and escape from reality. I myself was first consciously drawn to the subject in this way, and it has um, basically repelled only too many scientific and practical minds, such as I most designed to influence. So ironically, you see, and again, I'm not saying this about all of them, but I remember when I first came to L.A., some of the ones I met really seemed to be trying to imitate Crowley's life. And and it well, wasn't wouldn't like want to. I mean, it's sort of you know what I mean. And <laughs> yeah. um and and they he had and, a lot of fun. He did. And and the idea that he's trying to draw the serious person that is practical and like you were saying, scientific. Right. That was cool. Another thing that he says that I think is really key, and it's it's a it's very often what we talk about here on this channel is every intentional act is a magical act. So it's about intention, right? It's about um, the intention of when you strike a match and light a candle, what's mm-hmm. the intention behind it? It's not so much about the ritual per se, although Crowley did have elaborate ritual to the point where it was like theater. My friend, um, Dr. Ed Ligon, uh, who practically did a PhD, you know, on Aleister Crowley and, and a theater of the occult. I mean, you can, I mean, they were very elaborate and you could, it's so entertaining, but at the same time, I think, 
the heart of Crowley is very much about you can do magic in the words that you just that you say to someone on right. a daily basis, in the way you pass a cup of tea to someone, there can be magic in that. You know, I think, um, which I think is important because I think when you think of Aleister Crowley, you think of, I don't know, these sort of really elaborate, esoteric, eccentric, quirky, kind of very sexual things. And I think he was all of that, but he was so much more. And he was a, he was a man mm-hmm. living on earth having to survive in a grounded way, not just an esoteric spirit way. There's also, I, I think really interestingly, when you look at Crowley, of course, he was very into a lot of the yoga and a lot of the Eastern stuff. Um, and I think that that really is an influence. You see that in a lot of his mm-hmm. teachings. And the the thing I look at when I look at his work on magic, and, and again, just sort of pulling up some quotes here, he says, one must find out for oneself and make sure beyond doubt who one is, what one is, why one is. Being thus conscious of the proper course to pursue, the next thing is to understand the conditions necessary to follow it out. After that, one must eliminate from oneself every element alien or hostile to success and develop those parts of oneself which are specifically needed to control the aforesaid conditions. And and so much of what he's talking about is kind of mindfulness, just the idea of rather than just being reactionary and and random and just, you know, that that of actually sort of trying to actually sit down and and be thoughtful about, you know, how I'm approaching life and if this is what I want, am I going about it the right way? And and then the other thing that I really like about Crowley and, and is that he doesn't sort of separate the magical world from everyday life and Mm -hmm. the material world. And because I I think I see so many people that they do spells and they do prayers and they do all these things, but then they never fill out a job application. (laughs) And and, and he believes that you're supposed to work on every level, the the, the physical level as well as the spiritual level. And so it's not just a one-dimensional thing with him. And I I really appreciate that. Sorry, back to you guys. Well, you know, if you read, I just read an excerpt from his diaries, and um, the magical diary is a hugely important thing for uh, magicians, which I actually learned from someone years ago, but it's so meticulous. You actually stop at different different times and write the time and what was going on, and I didn't even, I wouldn't even have time to do it on a regular basis. I could maybe do it for a month because, right. and some of it's, you know, it's so that you can basically... Be, be observing if any anything is having an effect and, and if you want to remember if you did it if it had an effect I was really impressed by that and mm-hmm. how he used like Michael said the breath work a lot the yoga and he was in his diary very honest mm-hmm. and really funny at times it's the thing about that cracks me up the more you really read every little thing about Crowley there's always little funny moments in there where he's like very insulting to people that that normally you'd think would be his allies. Right. <laughs> it's not. Right, right. Know. Well, so. I think he was um, a person of the people um, in, in, in many ways. You know, he, he says here, and I love this quote, every man and every woman is a star. That is to say, every human being is intrinsically an independent individual with his own proper character and proper motion. And... I think regardless of whether he liked you or not, there was a certain amount of respect if you could be yourself. I think he probably, I don't know Aleister Crowley and I don't know him, his, his work and his life as well as you guys. But from what I can see from all the research I've done is that he would, you know, he may not, you may not, he might be someone that you'd want to have lunch with or he may not want to have lunch with you. But if you were doing your own thing, 
Yeah, he'd leave you alone. He'd respect it because I think he respected that more than he respected the pseudo-intellectual or the pseudo-magician or the person who was trying to get in with him to kind of be with around him and his lifestyle to, to sort of um, feed off him. And he probably did have a lot of people that came, that seemed to be allies who were really sort of trying to feed off him. And, and he probably, um, knowing Crowley, kind of let them think that they were getting to him. <laughs> and, then, and then sort of in some way um, let them know, yeah, you're not, you're, uh, you're not the real deal, you know. <laughs> Well, the thing I always enjoy when when I read Crowley, I have such a different path spiritually, and, I, and I'm happy with it. I'm more like Lady Frida Harris, and in, in terms of I don't, I've not done many drugs. I was kind of very pure on some level initially. I was so pure in Tibetan Buddhism when I took my vows, and I finally got over that part. Um, but you know, I really deeply love him, and I really appreciate what he's given to us. And the more I read him, the more excited I get. And it's like all of the bad stuff about Crowley is out there. So what you find is some of the better stuff. And it's quite surprising that once you really, you know, dig into his book and don't be intimidated by the terms, if you know nothing about the ceremonial magic and the terms, I did not. And you'll learn and you'll get the stuff. Any There's a lot of good things without knowing. And he wrote this to be less technical, he said. Um, I also wanted to mention, too, like in that introductory uh, part there there's 28 theorems he puts forth about magic yeah and i'm not going to probably pick all of my ones that i they're all yeah. great but you know what you notice is you're drawn right. to certain ones at certain times so yeah. the first one i was drawn to was um the 15th and i've been thinking about this concept for a long time he said every force in the universe is capable of being transformed into an, another kind of force by using any other kind of force by using suitable means there is thus an inexhaustible supply of any particular kind of force that we need. I've been thinking a lot how we need energy for things. Right. Um, We're need, made of energy. Right. So and, we have to have how, it. That's like a really profound thought. So, but how do you, then you have to think, well, how do I harness these forces? And right. magic is supposedly to help us harness these forces in a way that we can accomplish our will. And will in Crowley's world is capital W. Mm -hmm. It's not the little will which is a big, important difference. You, you're not supposed to just go around doing everything you want. <laughs> that's, that's not what he meant by it anyway. Right. Although maybe some people might think by looking at his life, he did. But yeah. that was obviously if they're not looking deep enough. Yeah, and it's really interesting because Crowley, of course, really does get that rap for, for being dark and evil and so forth, and most people believe that. But and when you really look at his work, you know, he really renounces a lot of that stuff. And I, there's one quote in the book where he says, acts which are essentially dishonorable must not be done. They would be justified only by calm contemplation of their correctness in abstract cases. So he's basically saying, look, we're not here to do harm, to do evil and so forth. There may be those rare situations where someone just needs a good smack. But, but for the most part, we're not supposed to do dishonorable things. And, and so I think that that's really fascinating. And, and of course, the chapter that most people freak out is the bloody sacrifice one. Where, yes, where it's all about right sacrificing here. the human baby. And all. But, but yeah. what's really interesting about that is that he's actually using it as a metaphor. He's not using it literally. Yeah. And, and there's a big warning about that, you know, in the book, um, which he says basically at the very last sentence in that chapter, he says, you're also likely to get into trouble over this chapter unless you truly comprehend its meaning. And then, and it's basically what he's doing is using the whole thing as a metaphor for sex. 
and in the, the, the male child being the sperm and the bloody sacrifice, you know, the, the woman's period. And what he's basically saying in Victorian England, if I publish a book on sex, you guys won't publish it, but I can use this as a metaphor, and you're just fine with that. And so he's kind of poking fun, I think, at the, the English society. He seemed to like to stick them in the eye a lot. And just to reinforce that, then in the footnote that follows, he says, there is a traditional saying that whenever an adept seems to have made a straightforward, con comprehensible statement then it most certainly that he means something entirely different. The truth is nevertheless clearly set forth in his words. It is his simplicity that baffles the unworthy. I have chosen the expression in this chapter in such a way that it is likely to mislead those magicians who allow selfish interests to cloud their intelligence, but to give useful hints to such as are bound by the proper oaths to devote their powers to legitimate ends. And so again, that, that it's hard for me to read those words and think, here's a guy that is the personification of evil. You know, he's talking <laughs> about, you know, pretty honorable stuff at the end of the day. Now, it's a bit of a dangerous game, and I don't know if I would have played it, but because there are people that did take it very literally and did get into trouble, and then he kind of got, you know, accused of egging them on, so it became a thing. And as I said, maybe a bit of a dangerous game, but I certainly don't think he was evil, and I don't think that was ever his intent. Well, I think during that time you could be put in in prison for writing about sexual things. Wasn't well, Oscar it was Wilde? Whole, and it was the whole um, Marat Sat, you know, like with, you know, how he was just put in an insane asylum his whole life, and he would sneak everything out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you actually you could be put in jail, you could be put in an insane asylum, which back then you did oh. not want to be in an insane asylum. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, like the Marquis de Sado, of course, kind of held reign in his insane asylum. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a whole different story. A whole other show, actually, on the Marquis de Sado. Yeah, Sade. that would be a good show. Um, but, but yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. Very interesting. And it's interesting, uh, yet it should be forgotten that this and other art at which we have dared darkly to hint are the supreme formula for practical magic. So it's interesting, what you, you know, and that, that comes from that chapter as well about human sacrifice. Um, that is um, the last paragraph. So, yeah. Um, another one that I liked, and again, this is kind of where I'm at right now in my own consciousness, um, was the 20th Forum. It's, it says, man can only attract and employ the forces for which he is really fitted. Now, this to me really strikes at the notion that you can have everything you want and be everything you want. That is absolutely, we all know that's not true. You know, we all know that that we have certain limits and conditions from all kinds of things that are actually healthy. Otherwise, we'd probably not get anything done if we could be everything and do everything. Right. So this is interesting to me. Like maybe if you're doing magic, maybe what you're asking for is not really fitted to who you who your true self is. This is why it mm -hmm. fails. And you keep trying and trying because one of the things Michael mentioned, I think Kristen in her own way said, too, is that magic is really initially about really discovering your true nature and will. And then from there, you know, you find out what to do with it. And most of us struggle with even that first step of who am I really in terms of what is my true connection to my higher self, to, you know, the, the better part of me, whatever that is. And I think that that's so profound and he goes over sort of ways to work with that. And that's the, the thing that he's trying to emphasize in general for this aeon is that we discover who we really are and magic can help us to do that and maintain it so we can live a true and genuine, like you said, authentic life, you know. Absolutely. So I like that, that, that 20th for, forum. 
You know, uh, the other thing that I, I like with Crowley and magic and theory and practice, of course, because we practice it, is his thoughts on divination. Um, and he has some really interesting things to say about that. And it's so interesting because I, it's kind of stuff that I can, I don't know if I remember because I read this and it influenced me or whether we just agreed, but mm -hmm. it's definitely something the way I look at it too. And because, of course, we all practice some form of divination tarot and so forth. Um, but he said, divination is no more than a rough and ready practical method which we understand hardly at all and operate only as empirics. Success for the best divine or alive is no more certain in any particular instance than a long putt in a champion golfer. The calculations, its calculations are infinitely more complex than chess, a chess played on an infinite board with men's who, men whose moves are indeterminate and made still more difficult by the interference of imponderable forces and unformulated laws while it can while its conduct demands not only the virtues themselves rare enough of intellectual and moral integrity, but intuition combining delicacy with strength in such perfection and to such extremes as to make its existence appear monstrous and miraculous against nature. Now, now clearly he liked to be dramatic, so there's no <laughs> doubt about that. And then he said, to admit this is not to discredit oracles. On the contrary, the oracles fell into disrepute just because they pretend to do more than they could. To divine concerning a matter is little more than to calculate probabilities. And, and you know, I, I've said over and over to, to people during readings that our job is to help you calculate probability. Is this something that's likely to occur, unlikely to occur, how likely to occur? Can you do something to increase the likelihood of it occurring? And it just goes to show where he was coming from. And the guy is such an intelligent guy, and, and he really gets to the heart of things. And, um, and I do think that he didn't... BS. He, he didn't really want to exaggerate, so he really wasn't trying to do that. He definitely spoke in riddles and metaphors sometimes. Mm -hmm. He definitely was theatrical, as you said, a little over the top on occasion and very theatrical, but but not exaggeration. And he really didn't like people that exaggerated or, or were hypocrites or BSers. And so I think that comes across a lot in his writings as well. Yeah, and I wanted to add that whole idea that the oracle is promising too much. I really can relate to that because when I used used to work at the Bodhi Tree and I would look at the resumes of people wanting to work there, the things they claimed they can do, I mean, it was over the top. <laughs> and, they, you know, uh, it was it was crazy. You could tell. And it, was a, it wasn't just one person. It was a lot of people. Now, I, that could be different now because that was, you know, almost, what, a long time ago. Uh, but that, you know, that there is only so much we can really do even with divination and oracles. But, you know, he, he believed in doing it, actually, though. It's interesting, but the more I read these theorems, the more it seems to me, and this is going to sound strange, but like a twisted self-help book from back then. <laughs> because like when you read things like number 24, which every man has an indefensible right to be what he is, a lot of these theorems to me are telling you to be yourself and that you can command your own destiny. You can make your own choices. Um, and what you can do, the practical steps that you can take. What you were saying before, it wasn't about just lighting a candle. It's about filling out a resume. You know, I mean, it's that whole big thing about, you know, um, you know, with the secret and the, and they say, you know, sit and stare at a $100 bill and then envision yourself as a millionaire. And it, that, you can do that. And that can definitely be part of it. But if you don't make up a business plan or go get a job or do some sort, you can't just lie and look at a bill, a hundred dollar bill and know that it's going to be a million dollars. So I think in, in his own way, Crowley was saying back then, um, these are the things that we can do practically, 
that magic is practical. And he does talk about nature a lot as well, mm-hmm. about being able to command nature, which I think he's trying to say is control. you can control your own environment. You know, if something's not working for you, leave. You know, that can be magic. Leaving a job that's horrible, that's dragging you down, and having the courage to leave it, and, you know, regardless of the financial situation, that's very magical, I think, for some people. Um, to do that because it's very difficult mm-hmm. to to leave situations or to change your life. Well, I, I think that comes back to again mindfulness again. The idea that um, I'm not going to live in denial. This isn't the right situation for me, and I'm going to extract myself from it. And and being more deliberate, more thoughtful in how you approach your life. And, and that's such a big, big part of his teachings on magic is that. Um, and there is this huge universe out there, this huge world of possibilities. And I, I think he really saw that. And then I, I think to your point, Kristen also is clearly Crowley was never concerned with fitting in. <laughs> he didn't, yes. If anyone in the world was an individual, it was. Crowley. <laughs> and so I think the idea of him embracing individualism, uh, I think he strongly believed that you have to be yourself and to be something you're not. He hated hypocrites. And, and I think growing up again in a, a strict religious household and seeing the debauchery that we were just talking about, some of the, the things where, where certain you know, pro-family values politicians have gotten you know in trouble for having lewd sex and in the bushes, you know, type of thing. And, and so, again, the idea of hypocrisy, I think, really bothered him. And I think that growing up in that Victorian time where in, in society everybody was supposed to be proper and gentlemanly and ladylike, and then in private they were doing all these debauched things, uh, I think just said, why don't you just do it openly? He would say, you know, just be yourself. Don't be ashamed, you know. And, and so I do think that that was a big part of it. But as I said, Crowley, never a big fan of trying to fit in to make other people happy, that's for sure. Well, he he was Leo rising with Uranus and Leo in the first house, which of course Uranus is all about freedom and eccentricity. Um, Leo is about the ego, and that's not a good placement for Uranus, but it still would fit with his this shocking is the first nature. Is who, who am I? I am. Yeah. I am. You know, eccentric. I and proud of it. Right. You yeah. know. There's a great battle between Yates and Crowley, evidently. They got in a huge battle. (laughs) So that would have been, I'd like to go back and see that, actually. (laughs) Um, The last one that I liked in the theorem part was uh, 26, and he says, every man has a right, the right of self-preservation to fulfill himself to the utmost. But why I like it is the footnote, because people claim that he encourages anything to happen. Do whatever you will. It doesn't matter. You could be a murderer. And that's not at all what he's saying. In fact, he says... Men of criminal nature are simply at an issue with their true will. The murderer actually has a will to live, and his will to murder is a false will at variance with his true will, since he risks death at the hands of society by obeying mm. his criminal impulse. I liked how it's logical, not, not emotionally. He says this is going against his own will to live because he's going to be caught and sometimes executed. Mm. So he's not saying, and also that idea that he differentiates between the little will or you know, our selfish side and the, the bigger will, the true will of ourself, you know, what does that mean? And to me, that's connected to, again, the destiny and authenticity and the middle pillar in the Kabbalah. So I think, uh, you know, whenever people start, he's evil, he encourages, honestly, it's just not backed up in his books. <laughs> <laughs> well, and um, my last one is number 27, every man should make magic the keystone of his life. He should learn its laws and live by them. And so he's not saying, let's just do magic, harem, scare him to get whatever we want. And that's, you know, we all know that he did have his, for lack of a better word, his own society, his own kind of like place where he lived his life his own way with his own followers. And he did his own thing in his own private way that way he definitely lived his own life but 
he is he is encouraging you to understand the laws of nature to understand the laws of magic and if you are going to practice magic if you are going to um will your life to to follow the practical laws of it so again it kind of goes back to a lot of what we talk about here on the channel i feel where it's sort of you know do you want to light a candle to break somebody up now, I'm not saying whether Alistair Crowley would have done that or not, but I, it reminds me, I kind of like to bring it into, I don't know, what we can identify with in the current modern. And, you know, people sure. people are doing magic for stuff like that. I want to get them to call me. I want to get them to break up so they'll come back to me. I want my boss to, like, get sick so I can take a spot. You know, you know it's it's that kind of stuff that we see a lot, what we call the, the, the more negative side of magic. And... It's interesting how Aleister Crowley, who everyone kind of calls like the dark, the dark magician, is actually saying to understand the laws of it. Now, I'm sure it goes deeper than that, but that's what resonates with me when I read that. Yeah, I really like that one as well, too. And, you know, the thing about Crowley, somebody once said who practices magic and he was broke at the end of his life. He ran out of money and he died almost, you know, kind of destitute with hardly anyone at his funeral. So um, when she was heard that, she says, well... Why did that happen? He he does magic. Why didn't he do something to change his fortune? Well, you know, some of the people during that time, their goals with magic were really right. more enlightenment. It was more right. conversation with the holy guardian angel. And he definitely fulfilled one of his mottos, which is to endure. He has only now really coming into his own, I think, in with people like me, that I don't really have an interest in doing ceremonial magic I'm interested in magic as a concept, <coughs> philosophy, a way of life. Right. Um, I want to test it. He's really coming into more people understanding what these deeper tones of, of his work are. Right. And and that that's what I think. And I, I think he had a different goal with magic. Than, and again, it's not because he's a better person or not. That was his own soul's goal. Right. It didn't know? break down to, I want to live in a mansion. Right. You know what I mean? Which is in our modern society so often what people kind of like want they want a certain type of abundance based on societal you know structure of what most people in society thinks is success and that's not what Aleister Crowley didn't care what most of society thought he had his own goals I think his ritual too and and you know he was obviously into ritual magic so everything like you said was very ceremonial and very disciplined and very ritual like but again, I think a lot of that also comes from that Eastern philosophy, the yoga philosophy, and the idea that um, it was being disciplined. It was about sort of a way of focusing the mind. Mm -hmm. and, and I know that as readers, we were just talking about this last night at, at David's, because um, somebody was saying, why don't you just do a reading for me? And the person said, well, you know, I've got my way of doing things. And, and we have that too. And, and to us, again, I think the rituals that we go through, whether it's cutting a deck so many times when you deal it, or whether it's spinning around three times left and then doing the reading or choosing with a certain hand, uh, it's not so much it has to be that way, but I think ritual is a great way of focusing the mind. And I think that that was a big part of it, again, is creating mindfulness. And you read so many of his quotes in the book that seem to come back to the idea of be aware, be mindful of who you are, be mindful of what you want. Don't just be reactionary. Don't just be daydreaming through life. But but And, and seeing everything you do as a ritual, you know, you, you look at it and you decide, is this the right way to pursue it? It was all very thought out. And I think he's, it's all about self-awareness, if you ask me, to a great degree. Now, there were some parts of the book I really liked um, because there are things, again, topics I'm researching on my own. And one was about clairvoyance. And I, I, I find the word is sort of thrown around. And I'm not sure everyone agrees with what clairvoyance is. So again, this is his opinion, but I, I value his opinion. 
And the, the chapter is called of, of Clairvoyance in the Body of Light, its power and its development. And it's one before divination. So basically, from what I understand from reading that chapter is that it clairvoyance comes from you having control or being able to use your astral double. And the, it, it can travel then um, using symbols to places. Because one of the things that Casey could do as a true clairvoyant, he literally could see inside the body. And um, I have not met many clairvoyants that have that kind of clarity. Mm -hmm. You evidently can develop it, though. That's the other thing. So don't let people say you weren't, you know, you weren't born with the gift. I, I'm really tired of the word the gift. Please, mm -hmm. let's just stop with it. You know, you know, because it's, it, you know, it's, it's an ego thing most of the time. I'm gifted. You know, uh, you know, you can, you can really, and the clairvoyant that he's describing is really useful, and it's actually very important for magicians to. Um, to actually develop it. So he talks about what it is, this fine body of light, and then he talks about a method of developing it, which is really kind of cool. The slow method, which he said is kind of passive, is through gazing on like ink in your hand or mm. that kind of, and again, if you do tarot card readings, I always advise people to actually gaze at the cards because it does put you in a light trance. And even if you know the cards inside and out, you want to gaze at the colors and see how what how the effect of it is on your subconscious. So anyway, I, I, I think that, you know, Steiner, I think, was a true clairvoyant. K Casey, I think Crowley was too. Um, so you develop the, the, this astral body, and it can travel where, again, using symbols. And he also talks about when you travel um, the astral realm, uh, a lot of Kabbalistic people do this. They, they, they go raise on the planes, I think it's called. They're, they're raising themselves onto the different planes. Mm -hmm. There are, it, you can be tested to see if the plane is what you think it is, if I'm really in the, the plane of Tiferet, because there are symbols there. So, um, and you should tell them what symbols you see, and you'll be able to test if you're mm -hmm. really at this place or not, and they will test you. And um, so that brought me to thinking about the tarot cards and how the ancient symbols that are used in the tarot cards are very specific to produce results and to open you up. So when you see modern tarot decks that have no connection to the symbols, they are, they've lost the real connection to the tarot. And that's why it's so important to not just reinvent it and call it tarot is that because there's a reason why there's a wand and the magician card, things like that. And there's a reason why people are pictured a certain way because they're a symbol. The queen is a symbol. It's not a person. And so people get all offended because, oh, there's not, you know, different races. And I said, these are symbols of something. I, I never grew up in England. I can't relate personally to queens <laughs> and kings. I But I love the symbol of it. You right. know, so the idea of developing clairvoyance, using it to then travel to places. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to say about, um, oh, coming back too is really important. So he thinks that because people don't come back properly, you can um, get in big trouble with your all kinds of things. Your health, he said, if you mm -hmm. fail to come back properly, your body of light may wander away uncontrolled and be attacked and obsessed. You will become aware of this through the occurrence of headaches, bad dreams, or even more serious signs such as hysteria, fainting fits, possibly madness or paralysis. 
Even the worst of these attacks will probably wear off, but they may damage you. So I thought that was really fascinating that, you know, the idea you're not really grounded back into the body. You actually have to make sure you do that every time you travel. Well, that's extremely important because there are so many people um, when you're experimenting with anything esoteric, spiritual, psychic, that you they just don't seem to come back. They don't seem to be grounded in reality. And that's when you kind of get people that kind of seem a little, ooh, you know, a little bit, you know, that they're not here. And it's amazing to be able to travel astrally, to be able to explore. But you have to live on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> you do have to be grounded here. It's okay to have be able to have one hand in, one hand out, as above, so below. But in, if you do want to success be successful here on earth on any capacity even just live you do need to be able to ground yourself and so i would be very interested if crowley has suggestions on how to do that uh you know i think he did have a suggestion i can't remember if i wrote it down though um i i don't remember what he said uh i know you have to imagine so one of the exercises he have was a little long so i didn't want to say it but right if you want want to start learning to separate the astral body you first imagine your own body in front of you Mm -hmm. and even if it feels like it's an imagination you believe that this is real this is my so it's like stepping outside of yourself the astral body then you imagine it rising and you see oh and then you're supposed to look around the room. Right. So um, I'm getting to the answer to your question. Look oh. around the room and see and describe it, but using the other body. And even mm-hmm. if you know the room, you're still supposed to imagine that this is happening. Um, and then you're supposed to try to rise and feel and see the room from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how you start. And so when you come back in, you imagine the, the body coming back into you. I know that's mm. part of it. I think there's some other things. And also he did recommend practicing um in consecrated circles okay that you do a you know so that you and then you you um you come back to that specific place right you come back and you imagine it kind of going back into the body uh so that that was one of the ways i remember him saying you know how i think you... it's really practical to have these kind of whether you use crowley's method or you come up with some other th- uh, something else or your own thing it's how do you come back from any experience like that i know with doing plant medicine um, you have to be able to be in a grounded place. And that's why when you do a consecrated circle, which I think is actually a fantastic um, suggestion, it's this: when you go into the circle, you call in the protection. So as you begin to go on your journey, regardless of how you're doing it, you're protected on that journey so that you can come back and you're protected in that process. Yeah. Yeah. So that, 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 you know, and I think I've probably made some mistakes that there, it's easy enough to do that. It sounds like you have a little bit of a soul loss, you know, little parts of you get fragmented off. Right. Um, And then he also talks about testing the spirits and that one of the tests is again, looking at the symbols and if they match, I guess he doesn't totally explain it. I'm sure he explains it elsewhere, but he said that this is kind of funny. Every spirit up to God himself is ready to deceive you if possible to make himself out more important than he is. In short, to lay in wait for you in 333 separate ways. <laughs> it's like, and that, that's when one of my complaints is like, oh, I'm talking to the spirit named, you know, Joe. And I'm like, did, right. did you test out if Joe is really what Joe says he is? And is right. he does he really, you know, just because someone is outside their 
not incarnated, it doesn't make them wiser. Everyone thinks that automatically they see more. Right. But they, they may brag about it or make themselves look more important. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit about what we were talking about with the fabulous Jim McGrath, who's going to be back next week when we were talking about angels and demons. And we were kind of saying, well, everyone seems to be talking to the archangel angel Michael these days. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that they're not, but I wonder, is it, and I'm sure some people absolutely are, but... How do you know it's the Archangel Michael? Maybe it's another angel. Maybe it's a different spirit. Maybe it's one of your ancestors. Maybe you just love the idea of that it's Archangel Michael so much because you read it somewhere or somebody else was doing it that you kind of went into your intuition and you started channeling these messages. And the messages are absolutely real. But you're like, oh, it's Archangel Michael. And you haven't really tested that theory. So I think it's interesting to have a way to test to know what it is because it's not about the label of where you're getting the channel or the messages or where you're going. It's it's about um, it being an honest and integrity and being able to get helpful information to yourself or to whoever it is you're trying to help, regardless of who it is. Yeah, I've always, you know, I still don't get a clear answer from how to test them other than you should test them. And I've actually done right. some research on it. I know in Christianity, they test it by asking them if they believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior, and mm-hmm. And some other things where you test them the word and have them say their name. You're supposed to ask them their names too. And But I don't know if that could also be a deception as well. I've yet to find something definitive that works for right. everything. But but I know that like at least looking at the symbols associated with, you can tell what realm you're in. If right. you're really in the realm because it's consistent. And that's what um, why Kabbalah is, is so powerful is that each of the planes are... Like Earth, they have literally some the same things on it, so we can all be travelers on the astral plane and and go to the same places and know we've actually been there. Right. Um, but the clairvoyance thing, so you really are. It it kind of seems like a form of remote viewing. Yes. And that you're you're sending your your astral body, which sees differently. I guess mm-hmm. it can see things differently to different places. Like in consciousness, it's like the symbol, but I suppose you could also see it because Casey could see inside the body, like literally. Right. So. Um, I don't know of that many people I've personally met that have that ability that call themselves clairvoyant, but I think they're psychic. So I think that's a, I think there's different connotations with the word clairvoyance based on the emphasis in the late 1800s on books, even though there's other psychic abilities, clairvoyance seems like it has some other, other things you're supposed to do with it too. Like in this case, it's going to help you magically creating this, um, being able to astral travel. So if you want to go up the tree of life, you can do it more readily. Mm. So I found that interesting because you don't find, even though Claire audience is really interesting, he does mention Claire audience in this book too, as hearing things, but why is clairvoyance so like specific and important in many of the old occult books? And even today, people use the word clairvoyant more than anything else, more than clairaudient or clansendient or anything else. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just trendy and it's because clairvoyant was just a word that was used a lot from back then up and up until then. That I don't even think that half the people that are clairvoyant even know what clairvoyant is. You know what I mean? You know, they just have an idea of being psychic or intuitive. Yeah. So I think it is important to define it and to have an idea of it. Well, and also if we are going to eventually really want to prove things more scientifically with the psychic abilities, I would like to have clearer definitions from that point of view. Like, right. I'm not saying these people are wrong or bad. I'm just saying that I, right. it's curious why, like, a lot of the 
late 1800s, early 1900s, they have a lot of information and some more, more esoteric view of clairvoyance. And then just like you said, it's kind of trendy because when I was young, everybody just called themselves psychics. Right. I don't even remember anyone using that word. They, right. they were psychics and people, oh my God, she's psychic, you know, right. and, and that was the word for what you're right. A lot right. of people use clairvoyant now and yeah. substitute. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great, I'm a medium, you know, what a medium of what, you know what I mean? The word channel is popular now as well. And I mean, it's not, nothing wrong with using any of it. And if it means something specific to you and you're specific, then that's fine, but it's just so often people just kind of label these things mm-hmm. and they're, you know, and, and I think a lot of it is about tuning into your intuition mm-hmm. um, and people are, as they begin to do that, they like to put a fancy name on it and especially if they're trying to market it and sell it, they love to put a fancy name on it. Well, so. I remember, I believe it's in one of Alice Bailey's books that intuition, according to her, is the greatest form because it's connected directly to God. Mm. Psychicism in general is the astral plane. Mm. And even Crowley talks about when, you know, in divination, when you see symbols on the astral plane, three different clairvoyants would say, I see this symbol Mm -hmm. and they see something that's similar but different. And then it's all about how you interpret the symbols on the astral plane. And that's where, uh, you know, that is more, I think, connected to wisdom and experience and um, for instance, I read for a woman, I think I told this story before, who a psychic had said when she was 20, she would drop dead at a certain age. She waited till she passed that age and she didn't drop dead, mm-hmm. but she retired from a very long career. And she only told me afterwards because then mm-hmm. I, I think I told that story before. And I so she saw this symbol probably that had a death connotation and she interpreted the, the psychic as it, she's literally dying because she was older. She mm-hmm. could have. So it gets really tricky, the astral plane when it comes to, you know, interpreting the symbols and mm-hmm. what do they mean. And um, and again, it's not that you shouldn't, but just remember that in general, the astral plane is seen as lower and intuition is a direct connection to God. Mm-hmm. Intuition is almost never wrong. In fact, I can say it's not wrong, but it doesn't always tell you why and you may misinterpret the motive. And the thing that's wonderful about intuition is that everybody has it. Everybody has intuition. Everyone's using their intuition every single day, and some people are tapped more into it than other people. But I love that because it, it takes away from the whole idea of the gift that you were talking about. Oh, I've got this gift. And granted, some people are born with certain abilities and or, or seeing certain things from a young age, but every single person has intuition and can develop their intuition. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, of course, lived around the same time as Crowley in in Victorian England, I think uh, had probably the best single definition of intuition (laughs) that I've ever seen or read. And he was speaking as his character, Sherlock Holmes, and he said, intuition is your accumulated life wisdom distilled in an instant. And I, I thought that was a really fascinating way of looking at it. It's just the idea that you know, I have enough experience that I kind of know what to do and know what I'm dealing with without having to do the math, without having to go through all the different steps of figuring it out. And, and I thought that that's really true. And I think that many people sort of um, want to sort of separate the mind. So there's the, the psychic mind, there's the rational mind, when in fact the mind is the mind and both parts of it function simultaneously. And, and I think they both feed into each other. So I think that um, you can't only live in half your mind at the time. <laughs> it has to all be working together. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, don't don't realize that. I think that's really true. And um, I, I think that intuition gets underrated. 
Um, and, and a lot of times you can have intuition as a reader, reader first, and then you can build on it uh, because all that experience, like Michael said, really helps to fine tune the understanding of the cards or whatever right. tool that you're using, astrology and things like that. Um, but I thought I remember reading that saying, oh, that's interesting. I would have thought, you know, clairvoyance is more accurate. That was uh, years ago I read that. I believe it was Alice Bailey. Are there any other things that you found striking in the book that you wanted to mention? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I thought it was really interesting, um, in the, uh, here in the introduction where he says, wherever sympathetic magic occurs in its pure unadulterated form, it is assumed that in nature, one event follows another necessarily and invariably without intervention of any spiritual or person, personal agency. And, um, I think that that's a very interesting quote um, because he's talking about, I think this idea of that, you know, you're making something happen and that if you make one thing happen, you're going to be able to control everything. So let's say that you did successfully use magic or intention um, in your life and then you can kind of feel like, well, I can now manipulate everything, you know, going forward. And it's, it's, it's about the moment, I think, and about, um, trusting yourself and your intuition, knowing that it's going to serve you when it's supposed to. So I think that that's very interesting. I mean, you could kind of go on and on about Crowley and you could take one of his quotes and kind of talk about it for an hour, you know? It's true. And, and I'm always excited when I read that book. I really get more excited about magic. He's such a big thinker and he is also funny, like I said earlier. Uh, I also, this this time I was reading about the magical memory, and I don't remember reading about it before. Maybe I just don't remember. And I think I have a new, like, maybe interest in my past lives because he believes mm. the magical memory is about remembering your incarnations, your past incarnations. And he says the reason for that he is so that you can connect with your true will uh, intelligently. So you, what you're doing, which my, my dad, I think, might have talked about on the past live show, is that you see these recurring themes. And so you can understand that this is not an arbitrary thing, that uh, that this is why I get gout. Right. And he says that, and, and, and that you have these same similar things that happen because you're working on a larger issue over uh, many lives. So I thought, he says, that's one of the most important things to do. And he says one way to do it, this one I don't know how you can do, is to make a vow that you're going to reincarnate quickly. <laughs> I was like, okay, good luck with that with me, you know? Right. But um, and then he says remembering things backwards. So you go back, go back, and you that makes sense to me. And it's a little harder than it yeah, looks to try, it you is. know, at the end of the day to remember what you did that day even, backwards. Well, and that was actually something that um, uh, someone gave me as a tool, actually, Um was to go through your entire day backwards. And when you come across things you've said or done that you wish you hadn't, just say, oh, I'm not, not going to do that anymore. And you'd be surprised at how hard it is to go backwards <laughs> and to do that. Um, because, the you know, there's just so much, we, we travel so much within the day of the maze of the complexity of all of our thoughts and everything that we're doing. And I often think we block things out that we don't necessarily like or things that we like that we maybe aren't ready to see. Carly would absolutely agree with you on that because the thing we really block out is death. And he said that that's one of the obstacles that you have to go back through the death that you had like in the previous incarnation 
Um, and this is the book, by the way, or this is one area you can see why he, he claims he was the reincarnation of Eliphas Levi. He has some really unusual specific things because he talks about it not being a vanity thing like, you know, I was Shakespeare or Cleopatra, you know, Mary Magdalene was really popular for a while there. Right. But that it's just to help you to see your themes. And so he goes through and talks about, I recommend you reading this, the, the specific ways that are really unusual that he could have been Levi. One was he was close, their death was, Levi's close was death to, close to his birth, six months close to Alistair Crowley's birth. Mm. Um, but he had a couple of books and and formulas that he thought were his own Crowley, and he came across it with Levi, and they were exactly Levi's work. Right. Um, they also had, he said he actually resembled his father. Levi mm -hmm. actually looked like his religion, who was a religious man. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not arbitrary. And, and then he says, when you're remembering past lives, he says, what's interesting, you, you remember weird things, like things that are trivial to other people, but they were important to you. Right. And they're, they're not necessarily all of the, the written history of that person. You might not even remember that. Right. But you get a sense that there's something, you know, um, genuine, authentic about the memory. That's one way you can tell it's a past life. And I said, that totally makes sense to me. Because even if you think in this life, you rem I remember some of the strangest little things good and bad, that really aren't relevant to other people, but they are to my soul. Right. I mean, it's sort of like my obsession with the Holocaust. You know what I mean? As from, from like a young age, you know, now that I'm older and I've been exploring all these things, it's like, yeah, I probably, there was, it's probably some sort of past life um, memory for sure, whether it was actually being in the Holocaust or, you know, I'm Polish. My father's whole side is Poland. And I actually was having a, a huge conversation last week with a friend um, that, you know, in World War II, Poland was just eviscerated. I mean, the Poles were just considered slaves. I mean, you know, and so there, you know, there, I'm sure like in my DNA, there has to be um, these memories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very meaningful to me, but, you know, I, you know, to go talking about something like that, you know, like in, I'm in high school reading, uh, you know, Eli, Eli uh, Weisel's Night, and I think it's just so fascinating, and people are like, what are you reading that depressing book for? You know what I mean? It's like, I think it's awesome, I'm reading it five times, could you imagine? So Schindler's List, like, eight times, I kid you not, my brother and I saw it in the movie theater, like, three times and I was in England and I caught it as that. I mean, who watches that movie four times? I mean, if you right. see it once, you know? Um, so I think it's important to actually listen to these. And when, when you get these things, to listen to them. And it's a part of who you are, that our past lives are integrated into our present lives. Right. And it's, I think, moving forward, if we are to incarnate again, there are certain things we're supposed to be learning and letting go of. So we're not supposed to be taking everything into every life. I do think we're supposed to be learning um, and and not going over the same things over and over and over again. And the whole point is that, you know, to reach that point where you're, where you're no longer um, uh, going into another life. Right, you're, you know, free from you're free from the wheel. They're free from rebirth. the wheel of it, exactly. And then you, you're reaching nirvana as they, or whatever you might want to call it depending on what you study. Um, but absolutely. He also said something interesting. Again, this is his theory that it's not conclusive. He said that uh, against a previous incarnation, if the present one is inferior to the past. Right. And he says one reason is that you kind of divvy up karma sometimes in different lives. Maybe you want to have a whole bunch of karma swept up in one life. So it's a really difficult incarnation just to get it out of the way. 
And he said he right. had some of those horrible lives. I said, well, that is an interesting theory that, you know, maybe there is a little more. It's not like each life you appear to advance. Right. Because you're trying to get rid of some of the things that you didn't have time to in another lifetime. It actually makes complete sense because some people just seem to have the worst. I mean, like everything that whereas other people that don't even try and they don't even seem really, I don't know, worthy of it. Just seem to have everything so easy. And <laughs> it's like, it well, them. maybe I'm getting burning some karma so that, you know, in the next life, it's, you know, I don't know, I'm going to end up being an Arabian prince or something like that. Or even just, you know, you're burning off karma early on in life so that in the second half of your life, maybe, you have um, a lot of more abundance. It's yeah. very interesting. That seems to be it. Yes, and please remember to subscribe to our channel, like us, comment, especially like us, you guys, because I know some of you are liking me on Instagram or us on Instagram, but please also do it under the video Check out this month's forecast, The Cosmic Weather, with Olivia, our new co-host for that show. It's out. It's for June. And we will see you next week as we continue to explore the esoteric and obscure. Yeah. Magic is spontaneous. It wouldn't be magical if it happened all the time. Have a great week. Bye, guys. Bye.